Hello, hello, and welcome to the show. You're listening to the We Podcast, and I'm your host, Sarah Menares. I believe that we all need a space to speak our authentic truth, as well as a space to hear the truths of real and vulnerable people so that we can better understand that we are not alone. Hearing the experiences of others encourages us to step into the light in our own lives. It is through owning our stories and learning to speak our truth that we are able to grow and rise above the challenges we face and step into the full power of all we were created to be. You will hear many topics discussed in this space with people from all over the world. We hope that you feel welcomed into a community of growth and that this space will invite you to uncover the absolute greatness that is already inside of you. Oh, and don't forget, check out all the We Podcast episodes as well as the We Spot blog over at thewespot.com. Are you ready? Let's dive in. It's me. You're listening to episode number 81, From Diagnosis to Advocacy, Parenting a Child on the Autism Spectrum. In this episode, I get to talk with Sonia Burgess. Sonia is a preschool teacher by day and also a part-time blogger for her own site. She's also a regular blogger for The Wee Spot. She blogs about creating a home you love simply and on a budget. Sonia loves sharing ways to help with special needs children, recipes, and DIYs. She lives in coastal North Carolina with her husband of 24 years and three children. After trying for five years, they finally received an autism diagnosis for their 12-year-old son. In this episode, we talk a lot about her journey through getting a diagnosis for him and all of the advocacy work she did along the way. We also talk about what it's like to parent a child on the autism spectrum. This episode is packed with so much valuable information for all parents, so I can't wait for you to listen. Here we go. Here is my interview with Sonia. Welcome to this episode of the WE Podcast. I am very excited to have the amazing Sonia Burgess with me here, and I know that we are going to have an amazing conversation today that is just going to be so helpful for so many people. So thank you so much for being here with me. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So you are a writer for the We Spot blog, which we love having you over in that space. Thank you. Yeah. Enjoy it. Good. I'm so glad. So I don't even, I'm really not even totally aware of how exactly we've gotten connected, but it's definitely been through the We Spot. Yes. And I think maybe originally through Hope Writers. Hope, yes. Mm hmm. Yep. Somebody connected us. I'm not even sure that I remember who. <laughs> I think Trish Russell posted in Hope oh, Writers. I think so. Mm-hmm. That yes. sounds familiar. Yeah. Love Trish. She's amazing. So good. That's that's so, so great. So yes, we've gotten connected through there. I've gotten to read some of your beautiful, amazing pieces. And thank you. Know, that you really have a heart for sharing your experience with having your son 
uh, diagnosed with Asperger's. That's correct. Yes. Yeah. So we will definitely focus on that today because I know okay. that you've got a lot that you would like to share, but we'd just like to know a little bit about you before we dive into that. Can you give us a little bit of history, kind of what's brought you to where you are today? Yes. Well, I'm actually a preschool teacher and I have done that for 17 years at a local private school here in the small coastal town that I live in. And so I have worked with children for a long time. In another lifetime, I worked in the stock market, but that's a whole different. Um, <laughs> that's quite <laughs> the shift. <laughs> it is very much the shift. Relocation and just took a total different turn when we relocated to the coast. And so we moved here to the coast, like I said, 17 years ago. I had two small children and was just looking for a way to meet people. And so I took the job at the preschool just so I could meet some other moms and, and that kind of thing. And I've been there 17 years. <laughs> so, <That's okay. laughs> uh, so it's, it's funny where God leads you, you know, you know, you never know, you never know. And so having that job and with all my training that I've gone through there helped me. I, I had my third child, my son Parker, when I was almost 41 years old. Uh, when I had him, of course, naturally he came to the preschool where I worked and he was able to start early, earlier than most children because I was a teacher there. So it was my experience there that, and the fact that I had two other children, but it was my experience there working with other kids that helped me realize that something was not quite right with him. Mm -hmm. um, at first it just, it was educationally. I could see that he wasn't grasping things that other kids did. He didn't play with other children. He kind of kept to himself. Those were the first markers that let me know that something was going on with him. And so that's how that whole journey began when he was three. And you said you live on the coast. Where, where are you at? Uh, the coast of North Carolina. All right. Um, yes, we love it here. It's a small yeah. town. We have another writer who's in North Carolina. Did you? Do know? you? Yeah, yeah. I I, I was just uh, talking with her, Crystal. Crystal. You're both. Yeah, you're both in North Carolina. We'll have to get you connected. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Let's just dive in because I know okay. this is really where you're wanting to share. When you had him, nothing really like peaked you before he was three. No. Now I will say during pregnancy was a weird pregnancy. I mean, granted I was older, you know, advanced maternal age, they call it. <laughs> so I was at the doctor constantly. And the biggest thing like I noticed then, which they say now could have been a, you know, like a, a small clue that something wasn't quite right, but he didn't move. Like I was in there constantly because he just was still the time. There was not a lot of movement. So I ended up being induced early just for safety precautions. But when he was a baby, there weren't a whole lot of signs other than poor eating, poor nursing. He was diagnosed failure to thrive pretty early on. So there were, there were little signs like that, but he typically met all his other growth markers mm -hmm. that they have you do when you go to the pediatrician. When he was diagnosed failure to thrive, they did send him for a lot of testing for like celiac disease and 
and those types of things. But early on, there weren't any obvious signs, I would say, of autism. Not until he got into preschool, really. You know, watching him, how he didn't interact with other children at all. I mean, typically at those ages, they, you know, they side-by-side play. They don't really play with each other. They play next to each other. He just kind of stood off in a corner. You know, he never could relate to the other kids at all. So really when he was, I think in the three-year class, we called in for him to be evaluated. Where we live, the public school system will come in at age three and do an evaluation. They have a school psychologist come in. So we did that and they started him in a public school program for developmentally delayed children, which is what he was originally diagnosed as just developmental delay, which is a a broad one that they use for a lot of children. It just encompasses a lot of different learning disabilities. We started with that and and we stayed in that program until he was in kindergarten, at which time they developed an IEP, an individual education plan for him. But we still had no concrete diagnosis other than developmental delay. So, and he was very far behind at that point. There were lots of little things. He couldn't learn colors and didn't have like a long-term memory, like he could not retain, he could learn it, but then it would be gone. So we uh, were referred to a neuropsychologist for some testing, and that's when he was in kindergarten. At that time, we still did not get an autism diagnosis. We got a list of sensory processing, auditory processing, developmental delay, anxiety, just a a whole list of things, but not autism. So for a while, we we went with that, and we got some therapies for that, but I just knew that something still was not right, that we were still missing a piece, you know, per Mm -hmm. se, to the puzzle. That's when we started um, switching doctors. We got new pediatricians and and tried that route. Since I live in a small town, there's not a a whole lot of specialists here. I think that was one of the things that maybe made it difficult. I'm not sure. But anyway, we we finally got in with another doctor. Then we got diagnosis of ADHD and things like that. But we, we were all around autism. We just for whatever reason, we're not getting right to the point of diagnosis. We gave up for a little while, actually, because it was it was really hard for him to, these tests that they do, you know, last two and three hours. And so we stopped um, for a little bit and just went with the programs that he was in and went with that until we realized that it just, it just was not enough. He still was not getting the things that he needed. So we switched doctors yet again. And and we finally got in with the right doctor and his teachers at school were really good about helping us figure out where we needed to go. And I'm not sure if it's different in every state, but in the state of North Carolina, the school itself could not give a diagnosis. You know, it's the same here. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, we got in with a, another neuropsychologist come to find out the first neuropsychologist we saw only did adults but at that time there was no pediatric neuropsychologist in this area so um, important note there right yes yeah very important note. <laughs> you know if you're if you're trained to deal with adults and then you bring in a five-year-old 
and sit them at a computer for hours on end, they're going to show signs of ADHD because they're, you know, it's just not age appropriate for a child that age to, to do that type of thing. Right. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So finally with the, with the right pediatrician and a new neuropsychologist, we were able to get a diagnosis of Asperger's. That was two years ago. Um, He's 12 now. So at age 10 is when he was officially diagnosed. So that's a long journey to get there. A very long journey. (laughs) Yes. Very long. Mm -hmm. It sounds like lots of advocating, lots of listening to your mom gut. Yes. I think that's so important because I, you know, as a therapist who saw children for a long time, my philosophy always was that the parents were the experts on right. the because they're the ones who spend all of the time with them, who will be in their life forever. It's so important to listen to the parents. And so often, unfortunately, medical providers don't. Right. And it's, it's funny when we first saw the new pediatrician who is a pediatrician, she's been a pediatrician for 30 plus years. The way that she talked to him within the first 30 minutes, she was like, I don't know how this was missed. Like just having a conversation with him and trying to be face to face with him. Mm-hmm. It's, it's obvious that he's on the spectrum somewhere. We don't know where, you know, and she said, I just, she was just surprised that it had never been brought to attention by his pediatrician. Yeah. Before. But, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes those things go miss. And, and, and since that time, I have done a lot of educating myself and research. And, you know, with Asperger's, they're, they're so high functioning that oftentimes they do receive a misdiagnosis mm-hmm. of all the things that look like other things, you know, ADHD and the sensory processing and the auditory, which are all things within the spectrum. You know, there's actually a a large percentage of children who are diagnosed with Asperger's at at a later age. Let's kind of talk about that. Let's give our listeners some education maybe on what Asperger's even really is and and what makes it a, a different diagnosis than, say, autism, which Asperger's is on the autism spectrum. Right. It, it is on the spectrum. And they oftentimes will have more social skills than your traditional autism. Now, my son is social, but not with his peers. He cannot, cannot relate to his peers. But if you sat him in a room with older people, he's, mm-hmm. he's fine. I mean, they're very quirky in a sense. And, and a lot of times people just mistake them for... Well, they're odd or they're just, you know, they're just different. You know, they still, they have the sensory, which is a part of all the spectrum, you know, everything in the spectrum, but it's on a lesser. Yeah. What do you mean by sensory? Sensory issues as far as food. And most of them have food issues. Like they will eat five different things and that's all they eat. They won't go out of that grouping of food, you know, whether it be crunchy foods or they only eat red foods or, you know, which a lot of people look at and go, oh, you just don't force them to eat these certain foods. But it's not that 
they can be forced to eat certain things. They really have a sensory, you know, aversion to those kind of things. And going back to when my son was an infant, he would instantly gag on mm. baby food. He could never eat the baby food because of the texture, mushy, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. Um, clothing. Most of them have, you know, they don't wear jeans. Jeans hurt. Bathing is not a priority, (laughs) which because if you think about it, taking a shower, you know, when you're standing under the water, and this is the only way I can explain it, it's like there's so many different sensory things going on. You know, you've got the water hitting your head and making little beadlets, and then it's hitting the floor and it's making noise. And that's a lot for somebody that has a sensory processing. Those sensory issues are what creates the tantrums that they have, Mm -hmm. uh, which to somebody on the outside just looks like a poor behaved child. Mostly the sensory overload that they experience, you know, being in a loud room or trying to put on a pair of jeans or whatever. It's those things that put their senses in overload and they react the only way their body knows how. And that is typically a tantrum. Yeah. And so then part of the interventions for that is teaching coping skills and wearing headphones and those types of things, which I think a lot of people don't get or understand. So I think it's really good to have this conversation even if somebody listening doesn't have a child on the spectrum, to be able to understand if they see somebody who is wearing headphones or something like that, just a better awareness for them about how to interact and how to be sensitive and kind in, in those situations. And there's a lot of exercises that we have learned actually from having some other therapies that helps with like the nerve endings when they're having tantrums, meltdowns, whatever you want to call them, like brushing therapies. And some of them, the therapies look so incredibly odd. And at first when, when we were learning them, I was like, why does he need to roll back and forth on the floor? I don't understand. But when you do that, it calms the nerve endings in their body and, and helps them to cope with whatever it is that is putting their senses in overload, whether it be light, sound, texture. And and what works for one might not work for another, but or there's, yeah, I I think uh, it's so good to know, try lots of different things to see what exactly works for, for each child. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about your, you know, your journey to get to this diagnosis was, was a long one. Yes. And, and I'm sure a hard road knowing as a therapist, all of the things that all of that entails with, you know, psychological testing and, but I'd love to hear from you too, as a mom and, you know, we have some people in our lives who are very dear to us who've um, had children diagnosed on the spectrum. And I know that just as a mom, that can be hard to receive that diagnosis. It can be very hard. I know, you know, I had spent five years basically trying to get a diagnosis that I felt in my in my gut was what the true issue was, you know, not knowing the extent of it, but I, I knew that he had to be on the spectrum. But then when you sit down and you've got a 20 page report that basically is spelling out this is what it is and these are all the things they can't do or you know those types of things it's 
it's hard, even though I spent five years trying to get that. You know, you have to sit and be realistic about what the future is when you really receive the actual diagnosis. Because part of the report, you know, kind of spelled out because he was older, you know, these are the things you need to do when they're in middle school, when this is what you need to try to do when they're in high school, when, you know, you need to figure out if they're going to be able to be on their own and most likely not. It just, it just really depends on each individual because that's the thing, you know, with autism spectrum, even though Asperger's is the highest functioning on the spectrum, they're still so different, you know, but I, I have found hope. We have a friend that we, um, went to church with that's a senior in high school this year that just got accepted into an awesome four-year university and he's Asperger's and he so you know cases like that will give you hope I'm, I'm don't mm. know that that's exactly my son does not care for school <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. but you know it as a mother it gives me hope that he is probably a lot more capable than people give him credit for you know which when you first get that diagnosis you think oh, you know what a as a mother it's what are they going to be able to do with their life? You know, are they going to be able to fend for themselves? And and for me, like I said, I had him when I was almost 41. So I'm an older parent anyway. Some things we have to consider as well, because he, my son, his particular case will probably need lifelong care, mm-hmm. most likely. Yeah, I, I think there's somewhat of, I'm sure, a grieving process around what you thought his future would be like right. versus the reality of, of what his future will be like. Yes. And there, there definitely is a grieving process. And I I will say in our case, one of the hardest things after receiving the diagnosis, once we, you know, talk to our other kids, because we have two older kids about what, what the diagnosis was and what that meant and what things were going to look like. And because family, although they're supportive, they don't always understand, you know, in, in our case, some of our family, not to be disrespectful to them or to us, but they just think that you can discipline a child and make them behave in a certain way. And with autism and Asperger's, you just, it's, it's not a discipline issue, but sometimes the older generation doesn't understand that. And so it's, that is something we're still working through because I don't, I don't know, you know, Autism has just become more prevalent in the last, I'm not even sure how many years, 10, 15 years, mm-hmm. maybe not even that, that long. So, you know, it's not something that they're really familiar with, whereas I would say the younger parents are more familiar with it because it's so prevalent these days. Right. I think there's so much more awareness now about what yes. it is exactly. And you know, I think you're so right in talking about the, the misdiagnosing of it for so long. Right. And still to this day, it's, it, it's very misdiagnosed. And now we're getting a better understanding, but I think the people who have a child on the autism spectrum have a better understanding, but there's still not a lot of knowledge outside of that, right? Like people who don't have a child on the autism spectrum. So it's important, I think, to, to, to know about these things because it affects the way we interact with people, the way we 
treat people. Um, right. Yeah. It's just really important to gather this awareness. Right. Very. And, you know, it, it makes it hard just because there is such a, a vast variance in behaviors and symptoms. And, you know, you could put several autistic children in a room together and they none of them may display any of the same behaviors. And so that makes it very hard for people on the outside to understand. You yeah. Know. Well, so it's even in the mental health community, <laughs> it's there because technically Asperger's isn't really used anymore. No, it's um, not. Mm-hmm. So it's, and so that's, even, that's even confusing in and of itself. Right. You know what I mean? Because people are, um, that's what it was known as for a long time. And then, you know, the mental health community comes out with a new version of their book and right, <laughs> it's right. no longer that anymore. Right. <laughs> it's all clumped under the spectrum now. So, yeah. So now it's technically autism spectrum disorder. For right. Any, but I think it is helpful to differentiate it a little bit by being able to use the word Asperger's right? because then you get a little bit more insight when you can see the name rather than just being all under one big umbrella, essentially. Right. Because you look at the extreme cases of autism and those children have no ability to communicate with speech, you know, so there's such a variance and such a, a, a depth of difference between those and the ones that have Asperger's per se, right. you know, who have no problems communicating, but, you know, on the social side of it, they, you know, they don't understand social cues and, you know, they, they don't have the compassion. And so I think it, even though they don't use that anymore, I always still use it with my son just so people can see. Because a lot of times people will say, well, I thought, you know, autistic kids could not communicate, you know. Mm-hmm. So it makes it harder, I, I feel like, as a mom. Totally. You know. Yeah. Or, are you sure he has autism? <laughs> you know, yeah. that kind of thing. Are you yeah, sure it's I- not a misdiagnosis? No, all the other yeah. stuff was... <laughs> You know, you're like, no, this I know. (laughs) Yes, this I know for sure. And, you know, part of that, other than just a gut feeling, was being a teacher and being around several children that were on the spectrum. Mm -hmm. You know, I saw a lot of that in, in my son, you know, so that helped as as well. I could have just stuck with the diagnosis that he had, but you know, without that autism diagnosis, he would not be able to get help as an adult, and that's important. Mm-hmm. He you have to have that diagnosis in order for like when he is out of high school and is on his own to what degree that can be he will be able to get help financially for therapies paid for with that diagnosis and without that you just they miss out on you know valuable therapies that they need and we are still battling out therapies right now even two years later we are still trying to get into some aba therapy um, applied behavior we're still working on that like i said we we live in a small town and typically those therapies stop at age 10 but they typically start so much earlier yeah so i'm just really hearing the theme of how important it is to continually be an advocate 
Yes. I mean, if, if, you know, if I don't ad- advocate for him and his, his needs, his diagnosis, his, all of that, we wouldn't get anything we needed. I mean, I had to advocate and fight and just to get in with the right doctor to get the right test, you know. Yeah. Well, thank you, Sonia, for sharing your experience with us. I think that this is really important for parents to know and for parents to know the resources that that there are resources out there, that there is help out there, but that they do have to fight a lot of times to get all of those things put in place, Right, um, which is really unfortunate. It is. It is. And, you know, I think it's important for parents to, to know that if they, if they are getting their child tested for whatever it is, you know, be it Asperger's or learning disability or anything else. And if, if a doctor gives you a diagnosis and in your gut, you don't think it's right. You as a parent and a patient have a right to say, I don't think this is right. You know, mm-hmm. where can I go from here yes. to, to get help? Because I, I think we're still missing a piece, you know, totally. maybe this diagnosis is part of it, but we're still missing the larger piece. And oftentimes I think we just put all of our trust in that diagnosis and just go with it. But I would say if you have a gut feeling that it's not quite right, that you've got to, you've got to fight for it. They're not just going to hand it to you. At least not in, you know, my case. And unfortunately, the older they get, the harder it is. Yeah, I think in a lot of cases. And I think that's great advice for anything, too. I mean, that I think we give doctors this power of like being all knowing. (laughs) Yes. And they're human, just like we are. (laughs) Yes, exactly. And I know, too. You know, I can see a child, you know, I have the right to diagnose, but without testing in a lot Mm -hmm. of cases, it's hard to differentiate. Right. Like you were talking about getting an incorrect diagnosis. Some things look so similar to each other. Yes. It's hard to tease out, okay, does this child have ADHD? Are they on the spectrum or do they have a learning disorder? Because if they have a learning disorder, then maybe they can have behaviors that look like autism. Right. Or if they have ADHD, I mean, they can just be so intertwined. And so I think it's so important for children, especially, to have that formal testing done. But, you know, and if you have the formal testing done, you get it back like you did, Sonia, and you're like, yeah, this isn't right. Continue to seek the people who will get the answers to you that you need. Right. It's, it's important. I feel like even though we, there are still some things we are not receiving as far as like ABA therapy, just having the correct diagnosis has even helped us as a family help him, you know, be more able to help him and to educate ourselves. I mean, I've had to go out and just find what I can because it's, it's on me to educate myself to be able to help him now Mm. and in the future and to, you know, advocate for him at school, you know, with IEPs and, and that kind of thing. Uh, Maneuvering those are, are not easy. That is, um, 
a whole nother process in and of yes. itself. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, it is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I know a few people who are just IEP advocates. I mean, Yes, I am one of those myself. I serve as a, a surrogate, educational surrogate for um, special needs children in our school system here in our county just to handle their IEPs, which has helped me learn a lot. In turn, I'm getting the chance to help other children who don't have anybody to advocate for them. So, yeah, I think it's important that you said that it's it's changed things for your family just to get the diagnosis. And I think Having the correct diagnosis is vital because, you know, I can put a behavior plan in place for a child. So I really believe in behavior planning for a lot of different behaviors. Uh But if you put a behavior plan in place for a child who can't do it, right, then you're setting yourself up for some serious failure and uh, heart heartache. I mean, it's yes, frustration. Yes. Terrible for everybody. Right. And so I think a lot of times people do that, just like you were saying with your family members, they set expectations without having a diagnosis or knowing exactly what's going on. And, and right. the child's not capable of those right. expectations. And so it is so important because I can just imagine how much that would negatively affect a family dynamic because right. there would be constant frustration. And, yes. Mm-hmm. And you want to, to, like having the diagnosis gives you the ability to set your child up for success and whatever it is you're trying to help them learn or do. Yeah. Um, and that's important for their growth. Totally. Yes. Such an important point. Yeah. I think a lot of people are afraid of a diagnosis. They are. And I, we had people tell us you don't want them labeled. And I'm like, if, if a label is what it takes to get him what he needs, then yes, yeah. I want a label. Totally. You know, the label helps me as much as it helps him and it helps his teachers and everybody, yes. I, I think. And I know there's different opinions on that. I think it depends. I, I I agree with you, especially in this case. I think that the label is crucial. Yes. Because what people don't think about is you don't want to give them a label, but then they become teenagers and young adults who have not gotten the support that they needed. Then they're turning to all kinds of other things to try and cope with this, this thing that could have been helped and, and they could be being supported in. And so, so often I see ADHD children who parents don't want to give them a label. And so right. then they turn to alcohol and drugs to self-medicate. And yes. so I think that's a really important point for parents to think about when it comes to, I don't want to label my child. Right. Because you are in a sense, keeping them from services and interventions and things yes. that could be helping them in a positive way. Right. Right. I mean, people that are trained to help your child with the things that they need help with that you as a parent want to help them with, but you may not be trained professionally in certain things and they, they need those therapies and interventions so that they can develop their own coping skills because you as a parent are not going to be here forever for them. Right. You know, it's just they have to be given the opportunity to help themselves in whatever ways they can. 
So important. Mm -hmm. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you for this conversation. Gets me fired up a little bit. (laughs) Thank you. I can talk for days about this, but you know, I have, I have done some, some blog posts on my own blog about, you know, for, for parents that are just receiving diagnosis Mm. and, you know, how to maneuver getting what you need. That's amazing. Um, Yeah. Walking parents through IEPs. Huge. So Sonia, tell people then how they can find you because I think real quick, this is another vital thing for parents who are receiving this diagnosis or who are thinking this is a, even in the stages of thinking this could be a diagnosis for my Mm -hmm. child, having the support from other parents who have walked through this journey is tremendous. Yes. Yes. It, it is. They can find me at soniaburgess.com. That's my blog. And I don't just blog about autism. I, I do other things, but I have done some posts on, you know, like I said, um, those that are just receiving a diagnosis of autism, where to go after you receive that diagnosis, APs, and those sorts of things. Okay. Wonderful. So I will put that link in the show notes and I'll also put a link in the notes to all of your um, blog articles that you've written for the spot as well. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. And how about social media? Can people find you there? They can. The name is a little weird. Um, (laughs) (laughs) My Facebook is S-P-B-U-R-G-E-1-S-3. And then uh, Instagram is SP Burgess with two S's, three. All right. I'll put those links in there too so okay. people can click through to that easier. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Yes, of course. Thank you so much for having Thank this conversation you. and for getting this information out there. I just think it's so helpful for parents. And I love what you're doing, not only advocating for your own child, but helping other parents advocate for their children as well. Thank you. Thank you for having me. All right, my friends, what an awesome interview. We absolutely believe in the power of our stories, and we are so very grateful to our guests who have the courage to speak their truth and share their heart, experiences, and light with all of us. If you want more of the WE podcast, make sure you head over to theweespot.com where you can find all of our episodes as well as the WE Spot blog. The WE Spot is your go-to spot for growth, connection, authenticity, and encouragement. You can also find us on social media. Head over to the We Spot Facebook and Instagram pages and get plugged in. You can also find me, Sarah Moneras, on my personal Facebook and Instagram pages as well. If you love the We Podcast, we would be thrilled for you to rate the podcast and write us a review. We want as many people as possible to be lifted up in growth and get connected with our community. Also, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes dropping every single week. We can't wait to see you over on social media. Thank you for being here today. It means a lot to us. Remember, your story makes you who you are. Speak your truth, grow constantly, rise above, and always know you are not on this journey alone. See you next time.